Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club for the month of February 2017. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer here at Slate, and I'm joined today by two special guests, John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation and beloved political gabfester. Hi, John. Hey. Um, and Megan O'Rourke, a writer and critic, and importantly for today's discussion, a poet as well. Hi, Megan. Hi, Katie. Today, we're going to dive into the collected lyrics of Robert Zimmerman, otherwise known as Bob Dylan. Dylan controversially won last year's Nobel Prize in Literature, so we wanted to talk about how his lyrics work as lines on a page, not just sounds in our ears, and to maybe decide once and for all whether the Nobel Prize Committee completely misunderstood Dylan's artistic accomplishment or was spot on to recognize his work as exceptional poetry. Um, So I'd love to take both of your temperatures on that question before we begin. Uh, John. Are Dylan's lyrics poems in their own right, and should they have won the Nobel Prize in Literature? You know, he's um, been conflicted about this through his whole life, which is perfect since he's been conflicted about everything, sometimes because he's genuinely conflicted and sometimes because he's putting us all on. So um, at one point he said, uh, in 1978, he said, I consider myself a poet first and a musician second. Um, and then, uh, and then another time he said, I think this is earlier in his career, he said, it's, it's not the melodies that are important, it's the words. (laughs) So he's basically been, and there, and it goes on and on. He's said this a bunch of different times, a bunch of different times. I mean, I've always considered, um, that they, that some, some, that basically it's a, it's a, it's a mush. You can't read it just on the page and you can't, it's, it's a mix. It's its own thing. That, it's, that, that you can read it on the page and do lots of things with it, and whenever I'm trying to figure out new songs, um, I do look at the lyrics on a, um, on a page to just kind of ground me in that and then listen to them. Um, but I think they're... So uh, I don't know if that... I guess you could be... So I just kind of think it's its, its own thing. It's not, um, it's not just words on a page. It, the, the music is a part of it. Yeah. Megan, what do you think? Um... Uh, so I got in trouble on Facebook, the place we all get in trouble for saying, no, they are not poems <laughs> in their own right. And I was accused of being retrograde and conservative and uptight. Um, but when I say no, they're not poems, I am not in any way uh, suggesting that they are lesser than poems. So I want to get that out of the way. Um, there is no uh, kind of evaluative statement in that, you know, in the music lyrics are less than poems. When I say they're not poems, I, they're not poems because they were 
written a song lyric. Um, so that might sound kind of specious of me to say, but actually there's a really important difference, right? And it has to do with genre and the history of genre. And is there some hybridity and overlap between, you know, song lyrics and poetry? Of course, right? And that's a really interesting thing to think about and talk about, and we, we should talk about that. But, um, you know, song lyrics and hope, you know, lyric poems work differently in time. And, um, you know, song lyrics are stretched and constrained and uttered through the voice, you know, speaking, right? They're, they're modulated by performance necessarily, whether that is, you know, the performance on stage or with the microphone or, you know, in front of others, they are spoken out loud. Poetry can exist. And in, certainly in contemporary poetry, just primarily on the page, right? So it can be written as well, but a lot of poetry is on the page. And it is, it is, um, you know, unless we're talking about prose poetry, it is often demarcated by the line. And to give you a concrete example, like one reason song lyrics and music is different is that if I repeat a word in a poem, like let's say I repeat, you know, a name, Maria, 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 right? It's it's hard for me as a poet to modulate the time and the emotionality of that name being uttered unless I was going to do a lot of stuff with punctuation and other things, in which case the reader is engaging with that name and that punctuation in a very specific way. Whereas someone singing a song can say, you know, Maria, you know, all sorts of Maria, Maria, you know, a very long word, right? So, duration becomes really different. And I think, you know, this sounds like a small thing, but it totally changes the way that emotion and affect and power derives from lyrics in a really different way from the way it does um, a poem on the page. Can there be overlap? Can can both things work? Absolutely. But are Dylan's song lyrics primarily poems? No. I... That is, you know, it's funny when you said Maria, I'm thinking of, of the millions of different ways that Dylan, over the course of his career, um, elongates words and leans into words and just for a song that everybody knows and, you know, how does it feel in, um, right. in like a Rolling Stone? I mean, you know, he works with that so much in what he's doing with his voice and over the course of his career, um, uh, and, and songs that, um, were very much of their time, like say the lonesome death of uh, Hattie Carroll, um, uh, he plays with the words in a way to deliver some of what was missing that would have been, everybody understands the context when he was singing it, um, on, I think it's from times they were changing. It's either that or another side of Bob Dylan. I can't remember, but in, you know, but 30 years later, people don't understand that. And, and when he sings it, I, I get the sense sometimes, and, and also it could just be sung it a billion times. So maybe he just is looking for variety, but I feel like he really does that a lot with his, with yeah. his voice. Um, yeah. And especially because he has this sort of singular voice that's so expressive um, that I think that I really, I don't know, I, I kind of agree with you, Megan, because when I read uh, his lyrics on the page, they do feel sort of flat to me, um, and they don't have all of that sort of wordless emotional content that I think is so powerful in a Bob Dylan song. Can I throw another one in there that just came to mind was um, uh, Clothesline Saga, uh, saga which is... Um, which I'm and I'm stealing here a little bit from Christopher Ricks, um, uh, which is I'm also about to steal something else from him in a minute. But Dylan's Visions of Sin is the first place he made me realize why I love that song, um, which is that it's a song about boredom, 
Hmm. Um, hmm. or that's his take and I'm, uh, I'm stealing it. Um, but, um, <laughs> because, and I totally got that because of the way he, he sings it. And he's, this is in the sort of the basement tapes period and he's just a lot looser and freer. And the voice that you hear is different for me than, uh, both, you know, I, and then the voice that you read in the lyrics is different, but I feel like his voice what I'm hearing him say in that song is doing so much of that good work um, to convey the meaning of the song. Yeah. And I mean, I totally, what you were saying about the way he, he, one reason I was saying that about the, you know, using the Maria quote is this is one of Dylan's hallmarks, his voice, right? (laughs) Not just his words, but his voice and the way he uses the voice and the words. Um, I was going to quote that quote you quoted him saying I consider myself a poet first and a musician second and and note as you noted that you know there's a lot of contradiction in how Dylan thinks of himself and presents himself um and another crucial quote he has which Rick quotes in in his great book um Dylan's visions of sin is a uh, you know it's not just pretty words to a tune or putting tunes to words I can hear the sound of what I want to say yeah and I and you know in a way like having the argument about genre is maybe not the most interesting thing we can do, you know, and, and maybe it is sort of, again, I don't know, fussy of me to be like, well, no, they're not poems because um, they certainly are literary, right? (laughs) There's certainly many literary aspects to the writing. Um, And to say they're not poems doesn't, isn't, I don't mean, oh, that it's not great writing or it's lesser or anything like that. But what is interesting is that question of like, when he says, I can hear the sound of what I want to say, like, you know, I'm always fascinated by like, what does that sound like to him? Because as a poet, when I hear the sound of what I want to say, it's not to that kind of music. And I wish <laughs> I had the ability that Dylan has, right? Um, so, but I, but I think that hearing of sound is a, a different kind of hearing, I suspect, from the hearing of a poet. Although, again, probably a lot of overlap. And I'm thinking about, you know, even like a song I loved when I was a teenager, like Everybody Must Get Stoned, yeah. right? And, you know, just the humor and the way like he draws and what he brings, what he brings to the table in terms of self-consciousness and self-awareness within a songwriting tradition, um, which is a slightly different tradition from, you know, the tradition of American poetry. Well, let me ask you a question, Megan. When you yeah. um, read your poems out loud, I mean, do you... Yeah. Uh, talk about that a little bit because, uh, you know, you, you have to read things that were written for the page. Yeah. No, and you know, I'm a poet for whom I would say musicality is sort of the word we use. You know, musicality is really important. Like I do like, uh, there's a great line by the poet Wallace Stevens where he talks about, um, what he calls the hum of thoughts evaded by the mind. And I love that because it gestures to the way that poetry kind of like music can sort of work on the limbic system, right? That there's a way in which poetic language um, is not merely transactional or denotative. And I think that is where, you know, I see what the Nobel Committee was up to in the sense that there, you know, song lyrics are similar to poetry, right? Um, right. And, and in that they're not, like, what he's literally saying isn't always what's actually being said, right? And so when I... And to go back to your question, when I'm writing and reading, like, I do really hear it in my head and I do hear it as a kind of musicality. And um, to me, the reading of the poem is really important. But I also really recognize, I was just talking about this with my graduate students, that like, 
you know, when you hear it out loud, you get certain things that, and you miss other things that you get on the page and vice versa. When you just read silently to yourself, you're getting certain things about the poem and not other things. So I always think of poetry as a kind of foiled art (laughs) because (laughs) contemporary poetry is this, you know, there is this odd, there's loss built into it. It's like, there's something beautiful about privately reading poetry to yourself, but also something lost when you're not hearing it out loud. But when you hear it out loud, you don't, you don't see the artistry of the lineation of the page. Um, And just one last thing I was thinking about, thinking about Dylan and, you know, we can circle back to the question of the actual Nobel, but, you know, I think that Rick talks about this triangulation. There's sort of a triangle of the words, the music, and I forget what his third thing is. And I'm thinking that, you know, in a way with music, with a songwriter like Dylan, it's like the words, the music, and that stage or that space of performance. And with the poet, it's more the words, you know, the the reader and the page, that the page becomes the dynamic space that the stage is in music in a way. But, you know, look, I mean, we can, I'm already quarreling with myself because, there's, <laughs> you know, slam poets and there's, you know, there's poets like Allen Ginsberg who also had his harmonica and like played, you know, re- recited his poems and out to music. So, you know, we can like delightfully dissect this and argue, I could argue every which position <laughs> in a way. And maybe that's the, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, is, the vo- is voice <laughs> the third part of Rick's triangulation? So it's music, words, and voice. That is three. Yes, 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 yes. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. Yeah. Have you ever read the the Robert Frost essay on sentence sounds, uh, where he talks about the farmer, um, the farmer's "I guess so," and he can say it very matter of factly, "I guess so," or he can say it kind of. Um, skeptically, I guess so. Um, or he could say it in, in a lot of different ways. Um, and and it sort of falls, and he says, in a poem or in a piece of writing that you read, it falls to the, to the arrangement of words and to the language um, to sort of convey what the tone, the emotional color of the tone is. But when you say it out loud, you rely on, on the inflections of your voice and you don't need sort of the context of the words surrounding that particular sentence to sort of shape the, the emotional color of it. And um, to me, it just, I think one of the, the uh, walls that I keep running into is it's not that Dylan can't um, sort of imply emotional tones through just the words alone, but since he doesn't have to, right. like he doesn't, um, right. and and so there there is sort of like a lack of precision or a lack of nuance. Maybe I mean not in a bad way, but but this is sort of more straightforward uh, language than you get in a lot of contemporary poetry, um, and it's just because sort of there's diversification there's there's uh or there's a division of labor i guess here that Mm -hmm. um just plain written poetry uh doesn't enjoy and i think another thing is that poetry written poetry also exists on a spectrum and on one end you have like this very fluid flowing um accessible it just sort of like drenches you um that type of poetry. And then there's sort of the Keats model, which is load every rift with ore, and you sort of have to, like every single beat in the meter is crammed with some piece of of meaning or or some sort of naughty phrasing that you need to unravel. Um, And I just think that like that density isn't, isn't 
better or worse than a sort of more fluid uh, articulation. But I would also say that like Dylan's lyrics are, they're much more dense than usual or than many song lyrics, but they're, but they're less dense than what I'm used to reading in poetry. And when you were talking about the, the extra tools you have with just the voice and sound, those two extra things he can use, it's the banal example that came to mind to me is after spending 25 years as a print reporter, when you write to television, um, you, have all, you have this other player in, in the way, or sometimes doing all the work that would take you up, you know, to convey the feeling in a written piece, um, the picture will do it for you in three seconds. Um, mm. And so you have, so you both want to get in, the, get out of the way of it sometimes, and then other times um, it gets in your way because you you know nobody's listening to a damn thing you've said because of whatever's on the screen at the time. Um, and so that feels like uh, partially, or I guess that's just my own experience with that similar thing, where you have to, where he's got so many other things that he can access. Um, you know, one thing that it only just now occurring to me that. Um, what would be an interesting exercise for people who are listening, though, is to go, um, if you're really into this concept, is go listen to, there are a couple of bootlegs that have been released that have other versions of songs. And um, one of my favorites is Went to See the Gypsy, which is off of New Morning. Um, and it's about Dylan meeting Elvis. Um, and the version that's on New Morning is quite different, sounds a good deal different um, than the version that's on the bootleg series, Volume 10. Um and I've never sat. To, I, I like the version that's not that's that was not put on the final album. That's on the, um, the bootleg version, series ten. And I wonder if it's because I know what the song is about now. It just seems more haunting, more timid, more like mm. he's going to. I don't know. There's just um, it's a very different song, and there's nothing that's different in the lyrics. Um, and uh, or I don't think there are any differences in the lyrics. Now that I say that, maybe there are. Maybe there are a couple, but. Um, Anyway, it's a good, um, it's so very different uh, as opposed to some of the other songs where you hear other versions in studio and maybe it's a little bluesier, but it's roughly the same song. Yeah. No, it's so, you know, I mean, um, two things come to mind. One is that just on the subject we were talking about earlier about like how repetition does or doesn't work uh, on the page versus in a song, right? And how the infusion of um, the voice the spoken voice changes. And also, I mean, I was, John, as you were talking, I'm thinking, okay, a picture is worth a thousand words. So like surely a chord is worth, you know, a hundred words or something, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's conveying some of that emotion, but there's a, you know, readers who are, or listeners who are um, interested in this might look, there's a great um, poem by the poet James Tate who died not too long ago that I think Bob Dylan might've liked and it was, or might like, and uh, it's called Lewis and Clark overheard in conversation. And it's 23 lines. They're all the same line. And the <laughs> line is, then we'll get us some wine and spare ribs. And it just goes on. Then we'll get us some wine and spare ribs. Then we'll get us some wine and spare ribs. Right. And you can utter it. Like I'm not doing a great job of it. I've heard great performances of it by people who are very funny and really able to convey to you like, you know, that sense of them out on the trail being starving, you know, and the different ways you would utter that line, but it's not embedded in the text. Like you have to bring that to it. Right. And that's really different from, you know, I was looking at songs that people love and, you know, let's say even though this, you know, a, um, a kind of archetypal song, like the times they are a change in, 
it's not that the lyrics of that song that make that song so great, although the lyrics are wonderful, right? It's, it's not, we don't necessarily go to reading Dylan's lyrics first when we want to have that contact with him as an artist. We go to the song, you know, and um, the tradition of songwriting and, you know, and look, I think, I think one reason that people were upset about the Nobel, in, in addition to the fact that it was pretty clearly a political dig at a lot of American writers, which yeah. we can talk about, was that, like, I think we envy musicians their immediacy, yeah. right? Like, we envy, like, there's something in this day and age where we're so mediated and we're now in a kind of virtual space more than ever, like, music, recorded music is seems to me quite singular in its ability to, like, there's a virtual aspect to it, right? You're not there hearing the musician, but the nature of music is physical. It does do something to kind of your limbic system. And I, 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 you know, I envy that ability that, that Dylan has. And I feel like as a poet, I'm working under a handicap that he's not <laughs> in terms of getting people to like have an emotional response. So, so I'm like, no, the Nobel should go to like a poor poet laboring on yeah. you know, obscurity. Like Dylan already has what he needs, right? So I'm not sure that's a really interesting response, but that was definitely part of my response. Have either of you yeah. ever had the, um, had a poem uh, do the evocative work that a, that that music can do, or that it does for me. I mean, so I am rediscovering a lot of songs uh, of Dylan's and others um, through my kids who are thirteen and fourteen, and it gets very weird when my son, who's a musician, will play songs um, because the 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 recollection and the the of the memory that comes back is so powerful of where I was when I first heard it, or more, more exactly where I was where, when I played it the 9,000th time on the tape that was in my car, you know, um, mm-hmm. one of those songs you just listen to over and over again. It's so powerful. And when I think of the poems in my life that are, real, are powerful and that are in time, um, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock being one of the most important, sort of the first poem that I ever kind of fully uh, learned to unpack um, I get a, I get a hint of that, but nothing like the overwhelming power of a song, but it may also just be that I don't, you know, poetry, which was really important to me, uh, when I was younger, maybe it just wasn't, it didn't hook in. Have, does it have the evocative feeling for you guys? Poetry just straight up on the page? I mean, it's, I would agree with you. Look, I'm a poet. I love poetry. It's one of the things I love more. It is not as powerful as music in that way. Um, Maybe there are poets for whom it is, but I, I kind of think one of the built-in trapdoors of poetry is this, you know, um, I don't know, there was a book that came out recently called The Hatred of Poetry by Ben Lerner, and it promised in some ways to be about why people hate poetry, but it turns out to be really why poets hate poetry, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and it's, you know, in some ways, it's, it is this, it's a very, it's, it's a deep form, it's a powerful form, it's an internal form, but in other ways, there is something attenuated about it. Um, because it is in a kind of invisible dance with, with music. And the most interesting thing to me to come out of the Nobel Prize still in getting it is the way people are thinking about that relationship, right? Um, but, uh, and I'm being forced to think about it. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Katie, what about you? I don't have that like, oh my God, I was sitting in my car 
you know, I have deep memories of like listening to Dylan at sunrise, having stayed up all night with some friends, you know, in high school and like the song coming on and just feeling like he's speaking right to you and that the music evokes something about your nowness in a way that is profound. And I have internal experience with poems like that, but they're not social, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one difference too. Yeah, I mean, that's beautifully put, especially the the invisible dance with music. I do think that poetry, for me, like it rewards labor, it rewards thought, and it can be a real cerebral pro- pleasure. But um, but I agree with you. I, I don't think there's these sort of like this tidal wave of feeling that it can necessarily immediately evoke. Like you can sort of work at a poem for a while and then sort of come to a realization or an epiphany and, and that's like a wonderful feeling. But I also think that loss is sort of more baked into my response to poems than it is to music. Mm. Like, as you said, with the invisible dance, there's like a feeling of something missing often. And maybe that is the the, the ghost of the music that you can't mm. hear. Um, yeah. But I think also Ben Lerner talks about that, too, that that one of the reasons poetry can be so frustrating is it, it, it evokes sort of like this vanished world or this, this possibility that we will never really attain. And it's, you're sort of grasping for something that eludes you. And I actually think something that's interesting about Bob Dylan as both a poet and a musician is that he is quite withholding in his persona. Like he has this kind of knowing Cheshire cat (laughs) um, grin, like this kind of um, I'm not giving you everything I know. Um, I'm wise, Mm -hmm. but I'm speaking in riddles and you are constantly sort of um, pulling it tugging at my robe and like trying to trying to get me to reveal what I know and I'm not going to and even in something like uh, lay down your weary tune where he says yeah lay down your weary tune lay down lay down the song you strum and rest yourself neath this the strength of strings no voice can hope to hum which is not only about the inadequacy of human language but about the inadequacy of human music and is saying actually nature is is the only force that actually promises the kind of fulfillment that you're seeking. And so I think that like deep within his art is a sense that we're never going to get exactly where we want to be and where we want to go. And so it's kind of lovely that um, that we can even uh, magnify this experience by just looking at his lyrics on the page and feeling that they don't deliver us to the destination either. Yeah, he has that great line, which I will mangle now, but I'll be the first one to put it to you, but I can't Mm -hmm. make you understand it or something like that. In other words, I'm giving you a truth, and I'm the first one to give it to you, but you're on your own (laughs) figuring it out, Um, which is is obviously what's better, right? Because if he sketched it all out in, you know, it's every detail, there would be no magic of discovery. There would be no magic of feeling. It would just be like an instruction manual. Um, it's the coming to an understanding of what he's saying or coming to an understanding. Like when I first discovered <laughs> that Boots of Spanish Leather is about, <laughs> you know, it's about this poor guy who's like just losing this relationship and, um, and uh, trying very desperately to... Uh, rekindle a connection with this woman he loves. Um, and, uh, and basically she's just like, well, I'll get you some boots, you know, and I don't know when I'm coming back. Um, right. When I just, when I just sort of 
it occurred, it came to me that this is like what this, what this scene was, was describing. Um, it was so powerful. The act of discovery was so powerful. Um, and so I think that's right. He's, he's withholding maybe because you feel like at some level he, uh, he likes toying, but it also is what makes the art great because it's, it gives you room to go make the discovery yourself. Well, I think like also this along the lines of what you're saying, like I feel like there's this may be a crude way of putting it, and I'm sure someone would have a great rejoinder, but it seems to me that one of the things amazing about Dylan is the way he's making use of the fact that there's more room for the archetypal, especially in like coming from folk music, right? So that there's this tension in his songs that's really incredible between the sort of way things are both archetypal and then utterly specific, you know, in a song like Tangled Up in Blue. And, and you know, and then it's hard to then separate out because he was such a great artist and because his music has been everywhere, are those things seeming archetypal just because we've grown up with them and right. heard the songs and they, you know, became representative of a love affair ending or a certain feeling of loss that you know, was expressed in that song. And because music like poems, you know, pop music like poems, um, songs can be repeated, right? I mean, one of the difference between um, reading poems and reading novels is that you can read them over and over your lifetime, throughout your life, um, like a talisman and a song is even more so. So um, I actually do have powerful emotional responses to poems. I don't have a very cerebral response to them, but I have an even more powerful sort of sensory response to music. And I think some of that is that music is because there is a wordless component to it. There's something, I don't know, something that does to our nervous system that's really kind of primary. And then the way words function with that, it seems to me you can use the archetypal power of simple words in a way that makes a word like love or virtue or um, I don't know what's a, what's a, you know, Dylan can make me really hear the word cry or woman in a, in a more powerful way than I might be able to hear it in a poem. Um, and the rhymes also work really like the rhymes in his music that might seem kind of simple, um, on the page, like, you know, in Desolation Row, he has the lines, you know, in Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot fighting in the captain's tower. I think it's while Calypso singers laugh at them and fishermen hold flowers, like flower tower, you know, but in a song, it works great. Yeah. I wonder if you guys have this experience. Sometimes it's like the least polished or, or, or like the moments where the seams show and the rhyming that like I find the most moving. So like in, in Tangled Up, in blue, for instance, when he says, like, she bent down to tie the lace of my shoe. <laughs> and to me, it's like, why would yeah. she do that? That's not re- what? <laughs> like, yeah. um, <laughs> like, you're just you're just trying to find something that rhymes with blue. Um, and yet that sort of I, I, it's not even desperate, but just that that um, not quite working rhyme like makes the song for me like it feels so full of personality and life and spirit um that he would just maybe it's just the constraints of the form forcing him into this strange contortion but it just um it's really powerful to me and and by the same token i think there's i love brownsville girl do you guys know brownsville girl oh my god i love brownsville girl although that was co-written with sam Shepard. the reason i love brownsville girl is because the at the beginning um when he said, you know, uh, a movie I saw one time and it starred Gregory Peck, like, 
that was, uh, I mean, that, I don't know. There's something about the beginning of that song that, um, that just totally controls that, I, that description of it just totally controls me. But what were you going to say before I just jumped all over your description of Brownsville girl? No, I mean, that's basically it. Just when, when he says Brownsville girl with her Brownsville curl, teeth like pearl shining like the moon above. And you read it and a part of you is like, oh, well, interesting rhyme complexity. There's girl, there's curl, there's teeth like pearl. But at the same time, it's like, is her teeth like pearl or is are her teeth shining like the moon above? Like it's not <laughs> it's not very conventionally well-written poetry, you know? Um, And yet that sort of, um, that, again, the seam showing uh, is just, it's so full of character. Rex actually talks about it in his book as an example of, you know, some of his, um, the way that like Dylan is kind of obsessed with movies too, and like movies and movement as part of his, the way his um, lyrics work. But yeah, I mean, just to go to what Katie was saying about the like teeth like pearls shining like the moon above. I mean, this is part of what I mean about, you know, okay, maybe it's not poetry, right? But then, because, you know, the way you use simile would probably be different. I mean, like pearls like the moon above, I would probably be like, oh, those images are a little over familiar at this point, right? But again, in music, it feels to me that you're playing with the archetypal in a really powerful way and that we want archetypes and kind of, um, you know, I also think of another Wallace Stevens line where he's talking about a kind of predicament of modern poetry being, uh, as he puts it, the freshness of night has been fresh a long time, right? <laughs> to say it another way. Um, somehow that feels different in songwriting, and I don't know why. I'm sure there are songwriters for whom that's not the case, but at that particular juncture when Dylan is writing these songs, there's something about returning to this really essential language um, and to using, you know, the the kind of, um, you know, history of folk music and to using, again, what I'm calling archetypal as as part of the power and in a weird way, part of the newness in a way that's quite hard in poetry and wasn't the case in poetry in the 60s when Dylan was writing. So, you know, there are these separate art historical trajectories informing the words that are, you know, a word in a song is different from a word in a poem. Um, that, you know, is, is or is not interesting. I don't know. I mean, there's, you know, I guess then the question is, well, why did the Nobel, you know, what does it mean for the Nobel committee to say this? Like, is it, is it useful for us to be reminded that songwriting is a profound literary category? Do we kind of remember that? You know, that's one question I have, like, did you guys find that a useful reminder? I don't know about you, but I kind of had this image of like all these old white guys being like, oh, we're going to do something really radical. We're going to give the Nobel to Bob Dylan. (laughs) Group Philip Roth, you know, and I, I don't know, I was a little like, well, I might have been more interested if you gave it to a hip hop artist or, right. you know, I don't know, if, you know, that's yeah. a whole other conversation. No, that's, but that's right. I mean, I feel like the conversation that's been with Dylan and whether his songs are poetry, which has probably been basically with him, although it's kind of interesting, I was going to say his entire career, but, um, and this kind of leads to another question I had for you guys, but, um, I mean, since that's been with him for a very, very long time, it's always felt like to me, it's like, you know, see, this is more meaningful than just stuff we listen to on the radio. For those of us who were right. who were finding deep meaning in it, you know, the, right. the calling it poetry was um, was like, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm a deeper person when I was like 14 or whatever, uh, and first figuring this out. But in folk music, there the um, what I wonder is if you think. So the songs are much more spare at the beginning of his career. 
Um, right. And I wonder if there's thinking to be done about the whether basically a folk song is closer to a written poem than say something that was on Desire, which is an at, which is such an atmosphere. Well, I mean, Desire, Highway 61, uh, Blonde on Blonde, are, to me, all feel like atmospheric albums where there's just a lot of other stuff going on. There, you know, kazoos and violins and um, and he's experimenting with all kinds of different sounds that are a part of the experimentation and, and, and are really matching with the words. Whereas when it's just him and a guitar, um, there's plenty he can do within the folk tradition, but it's still less than, than all the stuff he's conjuring um, in, in, say, Desire. Hmm. Or with, I mean, when you think of Time Out of Mind, um, yeah. you know, there's a lot of atmosphere in that, and Man with the Long yeah. Black Coat, and um, Ring Them yeah. Bells, and the whole Daniel Lanois, like, thing. I mean, that, you know, I mean, look, it's definitely the case that my experience of listening to Dylan the words are really important, right? I mean, Time Out of Mind, a huge part of the power of that album for me does have to do with that juncture between between words and music. So, you know, by by my argument of, oh, it's not poetry, in no way would I, in no way would I argue, A, that it's not literary or that it's not sophisticated or that it's not a huge part of, um, of his work. It's a really interesting question. Like, is the spareness, of the early poems, or, sorry, early songs, more or less poetic, or I don't know. I mean, my instinctual answer is no. Like some of those later, you know, some of like Highway 61 or Time Out of Mind, those albums feel very verbally written to me too. Yeah. But I guess part of my point is like, I find it all inseparable. Like to me, it's just all, I mean, I would out of yeah. curiosity now and then read his lyrics, but I'm not, I'm not interested in his lyrics on the page, I'm interested in them in the song. Yeah. Personally. Although I wonder, I wonder if we're losing something, if we don't also acknowledge that like, yes, the words in songs have this like magic or elemental power that like allows them to be fresh when they wouldn't be fresh um, just on the page. But I also think that like Bob Dylan himself counterbalances that sort of like, unironic um, valence that words and songs can have just because he is so wry and so ironic. And mm-hmm. so even in mm-hmm. his songs, like where language has these sort of uh, capacities, there, or language has, uh, you know, more sort of blunt force <laughs> than mm-hmm. um, we allow it to have in poetry. It's always sort of set off by his winking and, and d- dancing and, and sort of um, less straightforward nature, too. With one hand waving totally. free. Has, has anybody ever done a, taken a poem and turned it into a great song? Um, I mean, I can think of okay songs made from good poems. Uh, there's you there's know, Annabelle great. Lee um, by Sarah Jerose mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. yeah, nothing is. I mean, there's a lot of like songs. Are there great songs? I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure there is one, and I'm not. I'm not thinking of it now. Um, the hip hop version of Tinter Nabby just really never did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, I'm sure there were, you know, I mean, certainly there was a tradition of that in classical music. I mean, like Blake's right. poems are, you know, turned into various, um, or, you know, in the 20th century, I know a lot of Blake poems were turned into in the past. Obviously, there were 
poems that were turned into songs. And, you know, Emily Dickinson writes in a kind of hymn meter, but, mm-hmm. you know, like a great contemporary rock song or folk song. I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, I can only think of like the the art songs, like the Earl King yeah. or something. Yeah, exactly. But Katie, I think your point about his wryness is central to it all, right? It's like, and that's part of what I mean, like he has just a different toolbox to work with. Um, and it's part of his genius and part of why the Nobel gave him the prize is that he is an unparalleled genius, right? And, and part of that unparalleled genius comes from what he's able to do with the juxtaposition of tone, wryness, winking, slyness, like the way his voice kind of undercuts what he's saying or intensifies what he's saying. And that's what a musician has that a poet may or may not have. Um, that a great musician has that a great poet may or may not have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's so, he's so contradictory and it's so great. Like he's got this kind of epigrammatic um, ability. So he'll say like some people rob you with a fountain pen, which is just like this perfectly <laughs> just little capsule of, of um, insight and interest. And then at the same time, he's got this rambling persona that's, you know, I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm wandering. Um, and so the, the sort of the tightness and the looseness together, I think, are also a big part of like what makes him so successful. Um, are there any particular songs that you guys wanted to bring up? Oh, there's well, so many. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was, uh, one category that I've always loved is um, the sort of the I've gotten over you, except I haven't songs. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. obviously, if you see her say hello, is part of that, I think, most of the time. Most of the time is the one that comes first, you know, Basically, most of the time, I'm not thinking about her. Um, I think Don't Think Twice, which is a, supposed to be a, like, you know, goodbye to you and all that, um, is himself thinking twice about mm. saying goodbye. Um, so I put all those, I mean, they're obviously not all the same, but um, those songs all feel, like, it feels like that's a thing he's had with him his whole career is the, is the kind of... Um, Either the goodbye song that's not really a goodbye song, or just the song that's um, capturing that sense of uh, of of um, of loss. And that's not the rye. That's not the rye, um, Bob Dylan. But it's definitely the ironic, um, you know, voice where uh, where he's where you where you need to know the fact that basically you're not supposed to listen to what he's actually saying, but hear mm-hmm. hear him saying that he's really. Um, you know, in love with this, uh, most of the time, it feels like most of the time he's basically saying most of the time I'm just fine, but that's the exact opposite message that the, that the song sends, which is basically mm-hmm. he still can't get over this person. Right. Well, the way I like Tangled Up in Blue enacts that in the non-ironic, although there is of course some ironizing, right? But the Tangled Up in Blue, one reason it's so powerful, I think, and people love it so much is that sense of like the way time the like oh i've let go i'm not letting go i'm going back again i'm you know and the way yeah. it's like the way then it goes into the past again at the very end after saying i'm going back again like i think that's the like earnest version almost of right. that category of song you know and um, then maybe really the, interesting. Yeah. yeah or like the mean version is positively fourth street where he's like i i can't i can't bear to see you this is and, <laughs> and you're clearly yeah. he's clearly yeah. bitter and unhappy with her I mean, and obviously the big social songs, I mean, I think, you know, what's always amazing to me is how, you know, how many times we've heard those songs and yet how when you listen to them again, they're so fresh. 
um, you know, um, songs I think I've kind of metabolized when I go back to them, you know, from Blowing in the Wind or, you know, um, any, any of those songs, uh, times they are changing, like, but they become really, I don't know that the emotion is renewed. Yeah. Yeah. And if we're going to talk about him as a poet, it's also worth noting that he, he dips into a lot of different types of poetry. So you've got Hurricane, Mm -hmm. which is like Mm -hmm. a narrative poem. And then there are the Mm -hmm. ballads. And then he's got sort of pastoral poetry with what is the one that's like, sometimes I'm in the mood, I want to hear my milk cow low. (laughs) Um, Or or maybe a better example would be Ring Them Bells, you know, the sheep and the shepherd. Um, But he's definitely, I mean, he has clearly digested a, a wealth of, of, different types of written poetry. Um, yes, yeah. for sure. And, you know, invokes poets quite a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, you know, one thing we haven't touched on in our discussion is when I'm talking about poems versus uh, what Dylan is talking about when he says, I'm a poet with a capital P, right? That, mm-hmm. that Dylan was quite self-consciously referencing a kind of romantic, um, non, non-professional um, you know, deeply artistic idea of like what the poet with a capital P does and is and what the poet does and is. And in this sense, Dylan, I think is a poet is the poet as he's referring to it is someone who changes our vision of what the culture is and can be. And I do think he is that, um, you know, in that sense of the word. And therefore maybe that's more interesting than like, is he writing poems? You know, in that, in that kind of capital P sense, he is someone who was able to kind of rearrange the culture around his, you know, around his art and his art rearranged us. Um, And he is deeply resistant to being, um, you know, kind of made use of. (laughs) Yeah. by uh by industry and right and and he really has remained faithful to that to the point of not going to receive his nobel prize <laughs> and in right. that sense it kind of confirmed in a certain sense their reading of him as a literary figure if we if we take a poet in that romantic sense to be such a figure you know and and you're right about i mean that that's the minute he sort of stays in place long enough for everybody to catch up to him and to catch up with and to gather around him and what he's told us about ourselves, then he moves on, and basically, he you know, throughout his career, he's had those moments where uh, the people who were gathered around him are suddenly furious that he's left, and he's either gone right. electric, or he's gone right. Christian, or he's stopped doing protest songs. Um, right. And that is that's that that's I I love that conception of him. Um, I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's uh I like that a lot. Um I was trying to remember whether is it Yeah, so another side of Bob Dylan and the Times They Are Changing come out in the same year. And and mm. for me that's always been the best because another side is not the protest song side. And all and and, and the Times They Are Changing is the more protesty guy. And so here so that for when you were describing that, it was that's what I was feeling was those um those two albums kind of right next to each other. Um and uh and and another side ends with It Ain't Me Babe, which I've always thought was like I'm not that guy from just the previous album. Um yeah. as, as yeah. I project on him, you know, and this was his 
where he starts to get irritated with having to like be too much of a spokesman. Um, uh, even though he's obviously breaking into his new period in order to be a different kind of spokesman. He always wants to be the big poet, um, but just right. always on his own terms and not the, not the like, you know, trick dog that does the thing that everybody likes. Absolutely. Totally. And as you characterize, like he's constantly breaking. I, that's really true. Really crucial. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we solved this case. <laughs> <laughs> as, as if, if it can ever be solved. Right. <laughs> yeah. Normally we end by asking if uh, the various guests would recommend reading or listening to Bob Dylan, but I, I feel like that's kind of a setup. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so let's let's not even let's not even do that bit of theater. And I'll just say thank you so much for joining me. This was really fun. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. Till next time. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com/books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audio Book Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch, and thanks for the assist of Heem Shapiro. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtot. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For John Dickerson and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>